for the good and the bad and the ugly sides of faith is continuing today and I am doing rehab. There's only two women in the whole series and I've got them both so I'm actually a bit stoked about that. So we're doing rehab today. I think that she's probably actually one of the lesser known stories, like we all kind of recognise it, but maybe it sits inside a bigger story as kind of a little sub-story and we sort of maybe miss it in the bigger in the bigger picture. So I thought we might dig around in it today and have a bit of a see about what actually went on and what we can learn from it. So I thought I'd better set the scene first. Israel is out of Egypt and they've been wandering for 40 years at this point. Moses, who was the guy who had got them out of Egypt and led them around the desert that whole time, was um, in the process of dying. But he had... Um, He'd made a few mistakes, and so God had said that he wasn't allowed to actually go into the promised land. So he was making all of these plans to get the people of Israel into the promised land, even though he wasn't going to get there himself. Joshua was his right-hand man. He was the assistant who did all the practical stuff. And not long before this story is set, Joshua and a, tri a, a, a continuum of... 11 other spies from the tribes is sent into Canaan to scope out the land, to work out what the people are like, what the land is like, how fertile it is, how hard it's going to be to conquer. And then Moses, who had led them all this time, dies, and it's time for Joshua to step into the promise for the people and to lead them into the promised land. But it seems like by this point in time, the tribes of Israel were getting a bit of a reputation in the area and they were starting to scare the tribes and the nations of Canaan and the Transjordan, around the Jordan River, that region. In the Book of Numbers, we read a whole bunch of stories about how intimidated the nations around them actually were becoming. I spoke about Balaam at some other thing earlier in the year and that was a story about the king of Moab getting completely freaked out about this swarm of people who were going across the land like locusts. And he calls um, Balaam, who was a, a sorcerer, to come and to curse the nation of Israel. And God intervenes and it turns out very differently. But they were seriously freaked out about this swarm of people that were coming across the land. <coughs> By the point um, that they reached the Jordan, they'd already fought and conquered two of the kings of the Amorites. So they were beginning to have this reputation as being quite a formidable army. When I went and looked at the size of the nation of Israel at this point, after 40 years post-Exodus, they reckon that there was probably between 2 and 3 million people swarming across this desert landscape. Like it was seriously a big group of people. That was the inauguration in 2008. And that's not quite two million people. Yes, I'm pretty sure because this whole area is completely full. <laughs> but <laughs> they reckon that that is just under two million people. So the tribes of Israel were between two and three million people. And when you take into account all of their livestock and their tents, the thing that I read said that they would need about six square kilometres to set up camp. That, coincidentally, 
is about the space of the Melbourne CBD, from Spencer Street to Spring Street and Latrobe Street to Flinders Street. That whole block would be the Israelite camp in the, in the, in the desert. I can kind of understand why people were starting to get a bit intimidated by this army that was winning against the kings and just looked like a really huge people group looking for somewhere to stay. So, God has declared that Canaan is the land for the Israelites. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's time to move into that promise. So you probably remember the next bit. If you ever went to Sunday school or you've been kicking around church for longer than about five minutes, there was the whole Joshua and the Battle of Jericho thing. The story goes that... Nope, that's the wrong way. Why are you doing that? Joshua led the army of the people of God up to the city of Jericho with trumpeters in the head of the, of the army and they circled the city all day and then they went down to their camp at night and they came back the next day and they sat for six days with the trumpets going but they didn't utter a word and on the seventh day they got up there and Joshua said now it's time to shout the victory for the Lord and the whole army did a big shout and the walls fell down and Jericho was theirs for the taking. I had a bit of a look around and discovered that Jericho, they found it. They found the ruins of the city of Jericho. After all of this they built, when, when um, the city of Jericho was rebuilt, it wasn't rebuilt on the same site. So Jericho exists now-ish but it's not on the same site. They found the ruins. All the walls had fallen down, except for one segment of the walls, which was part of the way the archaeologists went. I think we can very definitively say what this stronghold is, because there's just this one little section of the wall that hasn't fallen down in the same way that all the rest of the other walls have fallen down. And I was doing some reading, and this is completely tangential to the story, but there was actually a group of um, PhD students who demonstrated that you can actually knock a wall down with a sonic weapon. So there's some credence to the fact that this might not just be a bit of a story, that they might have actually quite literally blown the walls down, except for this one section. Which brings us to the important part of my bit of the story, which is why that bit of the wall didn't fall down. So Joshua is preparing the tribes for this assault on Jericho and he goes through this very long process of winnowing out the army and he tries to get the best warriors to be the ones that go on, on the assault on Jericho. And while he's doing that, he sends a couple of spies to go and scout the region and see how they might best infiltrate and beat them. They go into Jericho. They wander in, pretending to be merchants presumably, and they go straight to the brothel. The king hears that the spies are at the brothel, and so then that he sends a messenger to Rahab and says, I know that they're there, send them out so that I can deal with them. And then she says, they came to me, but now they've gone. I don't know where they went, presumably towards the Jordan. If you hurry, you might catch them. And she's hidden them on the roof, of her house 
underneath some flax that she's preparing to then beat and then spin and turn into linen. So the soldiers bolt out of the city and the city doors are locked behind them at night. And then she goes and she speaks to the spies that she has on her rooftop. And she says to them, does anyone feel like reading? I can, I'm happy to read it if nobody feels like reading, but Sam, do you, are you ready? So the spies agreed that they would do that, that they would deal kindly with her and they left her with the instruction that she needed to gather her family inside her house when the, when the siege started and that as long as her family stayed inside her house, they would be safe. And she needed to throw a red cord out of the window because her house was on the walls of the fortified city. She needed to throw a red cord out of the window to show which window was for her house and they would be spared. So the spies then return to Joshua and say, the Lord's delivered the land into our hands. They're all terrified. They're melting away before us. Now is the time to move on this. And when the wall came down after the trumpets and the shouting, Rahab's part of the wall was the only bit that didn't come down and she was saved and she became part of the, the nation of Israel. So what I wanted us to do now oh, is to think about how would you retell this story to contextually make it relevant to people today? What are the bits in this story that you would take? You know, I can read those kids' stories and they go, so King David was a really cool hip, Euro-trash guy and he stole a car and nicked someone's girlfriend. You know those stories? How would you tell the story of Rahab? No, everyone's looking at me like I'm completely mad. <laughs> And then it fell down. Yeah. That sounds like a good <laughs> analogy. That's fine. Does anyone else have an analogy that they think might fit? Might not that that wasn't great, but you know, let's have a. Does anybody else want one? Can you think of any other way that we could tell the story? No. Interpreting. Interpreting. <laughs> All right. Well, that was my attempt at audience participation. So given the fact that that was like, I'm going to move on to the next bit. So Rahab, what do we know about her actually? Well, we know that she was a prostitute because the Bible tells us that she was a prostitute. They tell us that that becomes part of her name, Rahab the prostitute, everywhere. She's mentioned she's Rahab the prostitute. So we kind of know that's part of her identity. But over time, people have tended to divide over what they think that meant. So there's a camp of people who have said Rahab was a fallen woman who was, you know, like we tend to look at it through this the, the lens of the way the Israelites looked at prostitution. Where she was a fallen woman, she made bad choices, she was sinning, and God used her anyway, despite all of her sin. 
There's another group of people who have said that um, this was Canaan and they worshipped Baal and part of the worship of Baal included a fertility cult and there was prostitutes involved in this fertility cult and so um, she was probably one of those. So she understood religion. She said, you know, your God is the great God and, you know, she understood faith. So she was probably a sacred prostitute. But... But the sacred prostitutes all um, operated in the temple or in the shrine. And the story pretty clearly tells us that she had a house of her own and that the people came to visit her in her, in her house, which seems to me to indicate that she had nothing to do with the temple. She was just a prostitute. But it also doesn't seem to attach a whole lot of moral judgment around that. For the Canaanites, it didn't seem like it was a big deal. She had a family and a father. Like the, the story tells us that she said, well, what about my father and my mother and my brothers? In the Israelite kind of worldview, if you're a prostitute, your father would be pretty like cross and disown you and you wouldn't really have any family connections. So there's probably a pretty good chance that in the Canaanite worldview, her profession was just a profession. It wasn't a fallen, broken, evil worldview. It was just the thing that she did for her job. The fact that she knew details about what was going on in the political landscape and she kind of had a bit of a feel of the temperature of how people were feeling about the Israelites seemed to also indicate that she spoke, spoke with a variety of different people from a variety of different um, spheres of society and she probably, it sounds like, had the, the ear of pretty important people because the king sent a message to her and said, bring them out. It wasn't a, he sent soldiers to ransack the house. It was a very polite kind of a discussion that seems to have happened. So it seems like she might have actually had decent relationships with the people who were partially in the ruling, you know, the ruling class as well. The spies who were visiting her, might have been visiting her professionally or they could have just been going to a place where they knew they were going to get information because there's lots of people coming through and it seems like a logical place to go for information. The other thing that we know about Rahab is that when the war came down, she was absorbed into the nation of Israel. In Matthew it says that she married Salmon, who legend tells was one of the spies that she rescued which is all very romantic. We're not entirely sure how true it is, but it's a nice bit of a, like, top, like a bow on the top of a story, that she was brought into the nation of Israel, that she married an upstanding, good Israelite man, and that her son was Boaz, who we know from the story of Naomi and Ruth as, um, as the upstanding businessman that Ruth married, and then they are the lineage of King David, which actually puts Rahab directly in the lineage of Jesus, which is actually pretty cool. When I was doing all of the research for this to make sure I wasn't just, you know, telling random stories about stuff that I know nothing about, I read a whole lot of articles that were really awful about Rahab. How she was just a, a harlot and that her sin was actually that she wanted independence from her family 
that she wasn't prepared to live the life that was in front of her. And the thing that she was saved from was her rebellious spirit that had led her into harlotry in the first place. But it seemed like in all the articles and all the books and stuff that I flipped through while I was trying to put this together, that so much is made of the fact that Rahab was a prostitute, but I think we've missed kind of the actual essential part of the story. I actually think that her lifestyle was pretty irrelevant to the story, other than it conveniently provided her with some information about what was going on, that she was able to relay to the spies. I don't think it matters particularly much that she was a that she was a prostitute at all. It's certainly not particularly clear that the Canaanites considered her to be a pariah, and I'm not sure that she was living this sinful life that she had to be rescued from. Because if that's the worldview we have, then there was probably lots of other people in Jericho who were living lives that they were kind of trapped into as well, and probably could have been rescued as well, but weren't. So it made me think about the way that we have kind of built up this myth of this fallen woman that God managed to just kind of use. In Hebrews, the author writes quite an extended section on the heroes of the faith. It started with that really well-known verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. That's one of those things that we define where people say, well, what does it mean to have faith? This is that verse that everyone goes back to. It's hoping for things that you can't see. And it weaves the story, that whole chapter weaves the story of the people of Israel through the lens of their faith. The story of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses all acting on this compulsion to step in faith into things that they couldn't see, a land or a life or a future that they had no real tangible concept of, but they knew that God was calling them into that space. Well, that's what the faith is having hope for things that you can't see. That's what it means to have faith, is hoping. And then Rahab is at the end of that list of all of these people that had faith and moved into things, big things, for the nation of Israel. So I went back and, and read the whole chapter again because it says that Rahab didn't perish because she had been kind to the spies. Not because she had had some massive revelation of God or because she had repented of her sinful life, but that she had been kind to the spies. So I went back to look at the rest of the chapter again because it's one of those ones I've read so many times you just kind of read it through. Yes, yes, that's what it is. So, Abraham trusted that God would provide according to his promises. Isaac and Jacob both blessed the future of the people of Israel. Joseph, who died in Egypt, looked forwards to the promised land even though he knew he had no hope of ever seeing it. He put in place things for his people when they moved into the promised land. Sorry? Do I keep standing in front of it? I can't see. Moses, by faith, chose mistreatment rather than honour. He chose to, when he was in Egypt, he chose to side himself with the Hebrews who were mistreated rather than be treated like the son 
of the Pharaoh's daughter. Moses, by faith, led a rebellion with his eyes on this invisible promise that there was more for the people, the Hebrews, than slavery. And then there was Rahab, who by faith was kind. And then the passage goes on and says, there were many more who conquered and who enforced justice, who stopped the mouth of, mouth of lions, who quenched the power of fire, who escaped swords, who were made strong out of their weakness. And so many suffered and they were destitute and afflicted and mistreated and killed, but they lived by faith, waiting, looking forwards to something that they never saw with their earthly eyes. And then here's the best bit, I think, about all of that. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside all the weights and the things that trip us and run the race in front of us, looking to Jesus. That cloud of witnesses are these heroes of the faith that went before us, who made choices like choosing to be mistreated with a minority group rather than receive the honour that they could have stepped into. Now, given the fact that my last piece of audience participation failed so miserably, I don't know how this one's going to go. But I know that lots of us have things in our lives that we um, are trying really hard to change or to beat or to become better than. And so if you're comfortable with your neighbour or the people around your table, I would love it if we were able to share with the people around us something that we need encouragement to press on with. You know, what is it that you want to pull out of that cloud of witnesses to find encouragement to push on with? Is that too intimidating a thing to have a conversation with the person next to you about? That's not hard at all? Excellent. us to remember that the people of Israel is made up of all sorts of people from all over the place and all different stories and all different lives that have been gathered into one people all focused on being the people of God. The cloud of stories that surround us um, is made up of people who were ordinary and yet extraordinary because they acted on hope of things they couldn't see. I think it's really important to see the progression of the story of Rahab for what it is. A woman who was living a really ordinary life in a town with a family. She hears rumours about this swarm of people who are coming. She hears the fear of the people that she comes in contact with. She encounters some spies and indirectly then encounters God and makes a choice to be kind and commit treason and to lie to her king and then she's saved from the battle and she's gathered into the people of God where she finds a place and a sense of honour and a name for herself that is almost I read it as almost ironic when you read this Rahab the prostitute who is in the line of Jesus in the New Testament there's that kind of sense of 
Yeah. God didn't wait for her to decide that she was tired of her life in Jericho before he swooped in and saved her. He didn't wait until she was tired of her life of sin before he swooped in and rescued her. He encountered her and saw the goodness in her regardless of the life that she found herself in. One of my favourite things about the Old Testament is that God uses unlikely people for the good of the nation of Israel. And he gives them a choice too. Um, like Balaam earlier, who met God as a sorcerer in a foreign Canaanite land, encountered God, and God used him for the good of the nation of Israel. And then he had a choice. Balaam chose to do some really spectacularly dodgy things later and to walk away from being part of the people of Israel. But he had been given a choice whether he could be part of that. And he chose not. But Rahab, she chose to step into a beautiful and abundant life as part of the nation of Israel. Maybe it's a bit of a hangover from the Mythbusters series that we did, but I don't... As much as I tried, I couldn't find the ugliness in this story. I saw a woman who was good, despite the fact that we look at her story and go, that was a bad thing for her to be doing. She seemed like she was a good person. She, was, she had a good family. She made some really good choices. She decides to use the chance that she's got for the good of the people. Now, maybe you could argue that she was rolling her dice and sided with the stronger political power that she knew was going to beat them anyway. Maybe you could argue that. But I choose to see her as somebody that God used because she was good. So I have two challenges for us to think about today, off the back of that, to go home and think about. The first one, I'm beginning to see a bit of a theme whenever I get up here and have a bit of a ramble. It seems to come to a fairly similar place. Rahab had an encounter with God and with the people of God and she was used by God for good but it didn't mean that she immediately left her old life. There was actually a period of time between when she met the spies and when the wall came down. She stayed in her life. She stayed living in that house. Her family stayed in Jericho. They could very well have just picked up and run if they really had wanted to but she stayed in her life despite the fact that she'd encountered God and the people of God in that place. It, it made, it's made me really think about what do we um, what do we construct about our expectations of how people's journeys when they meet with God. How do we construct what our expectations of that is? Do we expect that people will encounter God and have this revolutionary moment of realisation and then their life is on a completely different tra trajectory? Or can we journey with people as they encounter God and then change happens slower than maybe what we would expect it to? And so I wanted us to kind of maybe sit with that this week and think about how do we interact with people when we take Jesus into their lives? What is our expectation? And how does thinking about the story of Rahab maybe reframe those expectations of what an encounter with God produces in people's lives? And the second thing that I wanted to encourage us to do this week is to sit with this passage in Hebrews 11 and look at the list of by faiths that is listed there. 
and work out what is it that God is asking you to do by faith. Is he asking you to, by faith, believe that something is going to pass, come to pass that he promised a long time ago? Is he asking you, by faith, to step into a new thing or to be radically kind or to reject the praise of the world and choose to side with the lost and the abandoned? When you look through that big list, it's quite a big list. And I think that there's quite a bit for you to put in front of God and go, okay, what is it that you... Out of that list, what is it that you are asking me to step by faith into? Kaleidoscope, like the nation of Israel, is made up of quite a unique blend of people that have come from a whole bunch of different places and who think about the world a whole different, whole bunch of different ways. But we can do awesome things together as a community of faith when we find ways of stepping into things that might be scary and that are different and that challenge our perceptions of the way things should be. But there's actually the footprints of God that kind of leave little puddles of water in the sand for us to splash our way through in following him when we step by faith into that 